0: Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today I'm joined by Ramsey Fawaz, who's the author of Queer Forms. This is a fascinating book about understanding queer and gender theory, particularly with regard to feminist roots, but I'm going to let Ramsey tell us all about that. This book was published by New York University Press in 2022, um, and I'm going to ask Ramsey, to join us and tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Ramsey. Hi, Lily. Thanks so much for having me. It's an it's honor. It's my pleasure to have you on today. Tell us a little bit about how you came to this project, Queer Forms.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, as a second book, this is a, a book that's really ambitious and kind of, uh, kind of a big field intervention for me. I really started thinking about Queer Forms about seven or eight years ago when I had just kind of become like a more established queer and feminist studies scholar. And I was dissatisfied with the stories that people had been telling about um, the relationship between the movements for women's liberation and gay liberation in the early 70s. So as somebody who'd been studying queer studies for many years, I kept thinking, like, well, where is feminism in all of this scholarship? Like, why is it always in the background? Why is it that, like, the relationship between women and gay people seems to be so sidelined, even though it's so important and central uh, to the history of, of gay liberation politics? And so I wanted to go back and kind of understand the mutual influence that these movements had on each other, the way in which... Um, the fight for the for the political liberation of women in the early '70s influenced gay people to also like articulate their own identities as a source of um, as a source of freedom. Uh, so that was one that was kind of one of the inspirations for the book. Is I wanted to turn back and find kind of resources in the early '70s for us to draw upon in our gender and sexual um, freedom projects today. But I think the other the other component that kind of took me by surprise is over the years that I was writing this book, I began to teach what we would call now Generation Z, like this new generation of extremely politicized, young, energetic, um, brilliant people, like young people who are so wonderful. I love them, but also deeply moralizing and very self-righteous. Often very convinced that they have it right, that they figured out what gender and sexual freedom looks like, and they have to teach everybody what that is. And I remember thinking, like, oh, but, you know, people did this before. Did you, did you guys know that, like, there are some people who actually did this before and they were your age, like in the early 70s? And so as I started to teach the queer and feminist 70s to that generation, I was amazed how amazed they were that many of the ideas that came out of the 70s that they have kind of thrown into the trash bin um, are actually really generative and exciting, like feminist consciousness raising and the idea of coming out of the closet and the idea of um, lesbian separatism. These were things that my my students had assumed were retrograde kind of needed to be let go. And when they actually read the original documents from which these ideas came from, they are so inspired. And so I thought one other dimension of the book I added was to tell a story that where I'm speaking to this generation and saying, "Look at this history, draw resources from it rather than throwing it away."
0: And and you sort of talk about how these um This concept that came out of the nineteen seventies, these the the movements of the nineteen seventies, the feminist movement, um, and women's liberation, and and gay liberation, as it was called at the time, Um, but you also sort of um, fold into this um, a lot of popular culture artifacts. Yes. So you're doing theory, but you're also doing popular culture. So I just want to ask you as we sort of move forward into the book, um, what you're doing with popular culture in this book?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, popular culture does lots of things for us, right? It entertains us. um, It produces forms of identification and cross-identification. You look at characters who remind you of yourself or people that you know, or characters who you know nothing about, and you want to kind of leap from your uh, position to them. But another thing that popular culture does that I'm really interested in is it often allows us a space of creative invention and play where we can work through seemingly intractable or impossible political problems in our culture. So when trying to change democratic institutions seems to be failing, when voting seems to be failing, when activist work doesn't seem to be working, art and culture tends to be a place we can kind of go to the side and imagine in a fantastical way, what it would look like if we were beyond those impasses. And so part of what I show in this book is that many of the best ideas of the movements for women's and gay liberation were taken up by artists, writers, and filmmakers in the early 70s who were so deeply inspired by projects for gender and sexual freedom that they thought, what would it be like to reinvent the cinema or graphic narrative, or the novel, you know, or theater to accommodate or account for all these new kinds of gender and sexual expressions? Like, how would you have to formally innovate in all these art forms to come up with new ways of representing gender and sexual diversity? So there was a kind of experimental, exciting, energetic work going on um, in all of these forms of popular culture. And my favorite part of that is that they didn't really care about the ideological distinctions between all these groups. Like most artists were not saying, oh, well, this idea is owned by Black feminists, so we're not allowed to talk about that. Or this idea is owned by white gay men, and we're not allowed to talk about that. Artists were like, we're going to steal from all these different strands, and traditions, and we're going to mix and match in an imaginative way. So I focus in each chapter on different kind of forms of feminist and queer popular culture, in order to show the level of invention that was going on, where they were experimenting with new ideas, and to say we should also be more experimental in the present. And ex- and when you start talking about the sort of experimental present,
0: um, which is again sort of what what the opportunity is provided for us in these popular culture yeah. sort of situations, you start to get to what you mean by queer forms. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and, and the idea that you talk about that you sort of wrestle with throughout the book is this sort of concept of fluidity and changing. Yeah. Can you yeah. talk a little bit about this concept of queer forms and how that Absolutely. frames what you're doing here?
1: Yeah, I mean I understand the concept of queer form very simply as the as an apprehensible shape, a pattern, a mold, an outline that comes to be articulated or connected to some aspect of gender and sexual divergence. The world is nothing but forms. When you look around, right, what your senses perceive is an infinitesimal number of like, or infinite number of shapes, right? The table that's in front of you, the chair that's in front of you, this other body. And forms are how things become apprehensible to our perception, right? So... Part of what I say is like um, the if the world is filled with shapes, what happens when those shapes come to be inhabited by something queer, right, or feminist, by a form of divergence from gender and sexual norms? They make apprehensible to our perception the possibility that gender and sexuality are more than one thing. Simple as that. So, an example I always like to turn to because it's so um, it's so obvious is like the circle is an ancient geometric form. But when women in the early 70s began to imagine what feminist consciousness raising might look like, they argued that women should sit in a circle and share about their experiences of sexism and misogyny. Simple idea that had revolutionary results, which is that women who felt that all of the suffering in their life was caused by their own personal mistakes began to realize when they talked to other women oh, this is a shared experience of oppression that we're having. And so the circle becomes a queer form in that instance because it becomes a site for women's rebellion. So I take this and I look at a movie in my third chapter, like The Boys in the Band, right? This incredibly famous, important milestone film, Hollywood's first uh, out gay movie in 1970 which depicts a group of gay men sitting in a circle screaming at each other all night over um, their experiences of homophobia. This is at a birthday party that kind of goes sideways. And part of what I say is the brilliance of the movie is that it gave form to the idea of feminist consciousness raising because the camera moves in a circle between these nine men as they articulate their various experiences of what it's like to be gay for each of them inhabiting different bodies it modeled artistically for audiences, like what it must have been like to sit in a feminist consciousness raising circle loud, energetic, intense, painful, but also really productive and transformative. So, queer form for me is a way of talking about legibility and translatability. Like, how do you translate the unique experience of being transgender? Or of being gay, or of being a lesbian, et cetera, to other people, including other lesbians, including other trans people. You need forms to do that, right? You need shapes that can kind of that you can imbue with meaning. And so part of what I push back against is this obsession with fluidity that we have today. Um, which is such a beautiful, in spirit, a beautiful ethic—the idea that like we should be flexible and open-ended and mutable in our genders and sexuality. Like, who could disagree with that? I'm so here for it, right? Like on the left. The problem is, is that identities are not liquid; they don't change in in a moment. They don't. We don't just like dissolve into the ether. It's painful to dissolve. It's difficult to have no sense of coherence. So what I suggest is that maybe a better metaphor would be shape-shifting, the idea that we meaningfully change our genders and sexualities over time, often in very clumsy and difficult ways, and that forms allow us images of what that change might look like creatively.
0: And I have to tell you, yesterday I was teaching the forms in Book 5 of the Republic. Mm. <laughs> <Really? Yes. laughs> That's awesome. That's beautiful. I love that. So when that. I was reading your book and talking to you, I'm like, yes, yeah. exactly.
1: <laughs> that's beautiful. I love that. Yeah. And,
0: and of course, you know, we had table, chair, and circle. Um, yeah, yeah, <laughs> exactly.
1: yeah. And that's the thing. Here's the thing, is that, like, it, uh, the logic of fluidity gives us the impression that anytime something coheres, anytime, like, gayness or transness or being intersex or non-binary, congeals into a form that it must now have lost its progressive radical edge, right? It must be now, um, its meanings must be fixed. It's become rigid. It's become contained by heteronormativity. And my thing is to say, forms mean nothing before people interpret them. They are neither constraining and rigid nor endlessly fluid. They are available as vessels for you to impute or put in your own meaning. A circle is a circle is a circle until a group of women sit in the circle and start talking about, right? Like radical feminist freedom. But there could also be a group of women sitting in that circle who are radically conservative, right? Like they could also produce something very unqueer. It's, there's nothing about the circle that inherently leads it to be any one thing. And I try to say to kind of young queer people today, stop railing against form, use it to your own advantage, like inhabit all of these shapes in new ways rather than simply trying to escape or elude all shaping, as though that is what freedom looks like. Yes.
0: And at the heart of your discussion is this question of freedom, right? Um, yes. And, and you you sort of come to it at the beginning of the book in a in an interesting way through the film Selma yeah. and Louise.
1: Um yes. and
0: an amazing interpretation and sort of exploration of your your sort of confronting this film. Um, yes. And and I was reading along and I was just like, and then we get to freedom. Okay. That yeah. was fascinating for me because it wasn't necessarily where I thought we were going to go. I we were gonna go. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. But the freedom is part of an understanding of sort of moving the rigidity and, and sort of yes. letting go of the rigidity when we think about like the forms we inhabit and how we also interpret other forms. Yes. Um, and that the freedom is also to be human. Um Yeah.
1: I mean, uh, to me, uh, my notion of freedom, I, I truly borrow it from the political theorist, Hannah Arendt. You know, she understood freedom as nothing but the capacity of people to collectively act to change the conditions of their existence. Right. This was her understanding of power. She said power is not top down. It is not something that people with institutional access and weapons, et cetera, exercise over everybody else. She would call that force or violence. She says, power is that which springs up between men. You know, when they when they br- come together and find an object of common concern, we all come together and decide we want to create a public life and want we want to allow that public life to thrive. And she says, when we decide that we want to do that, right, through our multiple perspectives coming together, power is unleashed upon the world, right? It's a positive conception of power. And to me, a form is like Arendt's notion of an object of common concern. It's like when something takes shape, an idea, let's say the idea of equality in the early 70s, an idea that now we think of as kind of like liberal, empty, pandering, whatever, But it's an unbelievably radical idea. It's not saying sameness. It's not saying women want to be the same as men. It's saying we're all different, but we should all be considered equally valuable under democracy. And if we are all valuable, then then our government must take into account the uniqueness of our differences, It means negotiating differences, not flattening and making the same. The only thing that is the same is that we're valuable. That's what Audre Lorde famously says, right? Black feminist, lesbian theorist, who says we are equal in our differences. That's an amazing idea. What I say in chapter one, where I look at this figure of the female replicant, like in science fiction, like the Stepford Wives and the female man, um is I say this was a form that gave shape to the idea of women's equality. This figure in, in feminist science fiction of a replicant, a woman who's supposed to be like a duplicate of you, but turns out to be different than you because she's literally another person. And when you encounter her, you have to talk to her, like you have to deal with her. And that means negotiating differences. What happens is that equality, when given shape that way, becomes an object of common concern that we all have to respond to without form without giving shape to some problem that we're all trying to deal with there is nothing to bind us together as people we cannot come together around anything if forms are just fluid that it's like what am i talking to you about anything and everything all the time like there's no way <laughs> right so this is why i push back against certain kind of contemporary social justice discourse is often really invested in these very vague, open-ended, kind of formless political ideas like universal inclusion, Um, the idea like everybody should be included in everything. And I'm like, yeah, the idea is beautiful in spirit, but how do I focus on any one political goal if I'm supposed to focus on everyone all the time in every instance? That doesn't make sense. Like, sometimes I need to focus on transgender people. Sometimes I need to focus on transgender people of color. Like, sometimes I need to focus on some form that I can wrap my head around for a particular political project. So to me, freedom is really about the ability to articulate questions of common concern in a public space and then act on those questions. Like that's what freedom is for, for me at least. And forms are a necessary vehicle for articulating what we care about and what matters to us at a given moment. And And what
0: you do in the book is you sort of are looking at history, yeah, fairly, somewhat recent history, but history, yeah. um, theory, queer political theory, yeah, uh, feminist theory, yeah. Um, and also popular culture. Um, and you've, you've sort of mm-hmm. woven them together into this fabric that, that yeah. sort of gets at this question of how do we interpret yes. um, and understand what we see uh, yeah. and, and consume um, when a narrative or um, an idea is sort of given shape, right? Right.
1: Yes, and, I love that's such a beautiful way of putting it. That's exactly and, right
0: and and for me because i i I live by narrative i i I understand mm-hmm. so much of the world through narrative that you know yeah. you're sort of you're unpacking and repacking was was really yeah. helpful for me to think about in terms of getting at this question of the sort of nonlinear history and the combination yes. with theory. Um, yes. so if you can unpack it a little bit for the yeah. audience in terms of talking, not just about, you know, sort of the, the nonlinear history, but a little bit more specifically what you're sort of looking at there. And then we'll move on to yeah. the question of theory.
1: Yeah. I mean, think of it this way, right? Like history unfolds in a processional way, um, certain, Certain historical events kind of catalyze people to act in certain ways. So here we are at the end of the 60s. The civil rights movement is now transitioning into Black power. It has created a template for a variety of other marginalized people for what it looks like to demand your proper humanity. But also because the civil rights movement began to sort of close ranks, right, around blackness, it also influenced many groups to start articulating their own unique needs. So like the women's movement explodes out of the new left because it's like, wow, we've been invested in this project almost a decade and nobody here cares about our interests. Right. And gay liberation uh, explodes similarly but partly out of the Stonewall Rebellion, but it had a long, much longer roots than that in the whole homophile movement, right? And in transgender liberation in the 60s. But all of these groups are like, there's a, there's a catalytic moment around the end of the 70s. And that in turn inspires the production of new political concepts. Like these movements are like, how do we articulate our unique oppression through language and ideas that will make sense to people. So feminists invent the term patriarchy, right? Like to describe this syste- systematic oppression of women in which th- there is a naturalized idea that men are superior, simple as that, right? And that they should hold power. Um, gay liberation comes up with all of these concepts for describing forms of internalized homophobia and, um, And the idea of like sexual hierarchy, there are sexualities that are better and worse, et cetera. But those ideas usually circulate most powerfully between activists who are thinking in abstract political terms about how they want to intervene into institutional change. The question then becomes, how do you sell those ideas to mass audiences? How do you get ordinary people to understand the notion of patriarchy when it is so embedded in their psyche that it's like, why would I even find this a problem? And I argue that the way you do that translation is often through popular culture. Popular culture, right? Like this this very weird object produced by mass corporations often, right? Like which are deeply vested in the power relations of our society, circulated to audiences through mechanisms that are also deeply (laughs) repressive and yet capable of telling so many interesting, funny, beautiful, tragic stories that once they are released into the world, no institutional structure can control how people interpret them. You can't. Unless you figure out mind control, you cannot... Control how somebody will interpret a work of art. There's a reason why there's a million homophobic representations of 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 proto gay people in classical Hollywood cinema as villains, as obsequious, as like disgusting and gross that gay people love and have interpreted in campy, ironic, loving funny ways because no matter how bad those representations were, nobody could prevent queer people and their allies of making meaning of them in ways that are unexpected. So part of what I try to follow in the book is I look at a series of popular culture forms from like lesbian science fiction to um, like queer graphic visual, like uh, like comic strip work to gay theater um, and, and gay melodrama To show how all of these popular forms um, circulated the ideas of women's and gay liberation to mass audiences and gave them new interpretive possibilities, like make meaning of this the way that you want. So the last thing I'll say about that is that if we start with history as a processional unfolding in a moment, that like in a particular moment all of the products that are created in that moment will then circulate indefinitely into an unpredictable future and they will become unhinged from the history they started at. So when someone watches the boys in the band today, they may not know anything about the 70s. They may not know anything about gay culture in that period, but something about that period will now tr- like, like, have time traveled, as White Shee Demok puts it, to this person, and they will do something with it, which means its meaning is never fixed.
0: So there's no fixed meaning in a certain sense in terms of what we see in front of us, um, particularly when we're talking about sort of narrative constructions within popular culture, um, because the characters may mean something to somebody in the 1970s and something else completely in 2022. Absolutely. And
1: And the forms. Yeah, I'm sorry. The the forms that any given popular culture text grants us or gives us can be um, taken up and adapted in a million ways. So like, you know, one of the chapters I'm most proud of in the book is the one on Tales of the City, right, which many of us know is the most popular gay serial fiction in the history of the genre. And like about a story about a group of gay friends and their allies kind of and their sex lives in 70s San Francisco. That story was so radical in terms of the way it circulated to mass audiences in the Bay Area. The idea that coming out is not simply a way of telling people that you're gay. It is a way of expressing your uh, commitment to queer ways of life, whether you're straight or gay, Uh, you know, it doesn't matter. Queerness is a way of life, according to that story. But when you read it, it makes a lot of mistakes, right? It's it's fairly like it's it's fairly racist, I would say, without intending to be. It's not intentionally racist, but like it's very much overrepresents white people in the Bay Area. It has negative representations of Asian Americans and African Americans. There is nothing about those mistakes that prevents future generations from reading the story loving it, and then saying, I want to tell another version of that story that includes Asian Americans. And this is what happens when Netflix remakes the story in 2019, I believe. They centralize Asian American and Latinx queer and trans people in San Francisco, and they bring them into conversation with the original white characters. The form of the narrative, which is serial, right? The form of that narrative is simply serial unfolding, lends itself to another installment that says, oh, no, we're not going to whitewash it this time. In the next installment, we're going to add something new. So this is why, to me, when you pay attention to forms, you're less interested in critiquing them for what they fail to do, and you're more interested in asking what could they do more if I were to put it in a different context. Or if I were to rethink it just you know, as I'm absorbing it. Exactly, or reread it in surprising and unexpected ways. Yeah. Precisely. Um, I
0: I have to tell you, when I when I re Star Wars, which I know is is not necessarily we
1: totally just did that last totally, night. <laughs>
0: um, a, a, a queer story. Um but yes. I, I had seen the original in the movie theater yeah. because I'm that old. And then in the nineties they re-released them and I went and saw them and I was like, oh my god, it is so Cold War. Everybody's costume yeah. is like a Mao suit or something that the yes. that the Soviet Union was wearing in the 1960s. Yes. And, and I know that wasn't what Lucas intended, but I was just like, it's there.
1: <laughs> it's definitely there. 100%. Yeah. I mean, the empire is like an abstraction for all forms of totalitarian and fascist. Absolutely. Right? I mean- Part of wh- whenever I re watch them, what I'm amazed is like the reasons why people are committed to the empire are so thin. They're like, We just want control, that's it. Everybody just wants control. They're like, We want order, 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 right? And you're like, What is the deep commitment to this imperial project? Like, that's it. Like, you just don't like that things are unpredictable. And in some sense, that lends itself formally, like you're saying, like to that, that the empire represents all different versions of conservatism, like the desire to control an unpredictable and uncontrollable world. Absolutely, And the rebels are always sort of chaotic and destabilizing. Yes,
0: yes, exactly. (laughs) Kind Mm -hmm. of like democracy sometimes. But yeah, (laughs) precisely. Uh, So I wanted to move you from the sort of linear history and nonlinear history that you're talking about that, you know, we've also just discussed, like every time you come to a, a piece of art or popular culture, you can re-envision it, um, yes. or it can have a different form, um, or it can emphasize different things. Then you also talk about the fact that you you're maybe a little bit of a political theorist, yeah,
1: yeah, exactly <laughs> in, in,
0: in your sort of day job, um, yeah. and that you came at it maybe through a back door. Um, but yeah. the the book is also one that is filled with the framing of theory. Um, yes. and an understanding, not just of feminist theory, but of understanding how theory works to help us understand the world, which,
1: yeah, out- which is
0: exactly what it's, what it's supposed to do. So, and you've talked a little bit about Arendt, um, as part of this sort of understanding yeah. of freedom, but can you talk a little bit about what you were trying to do with theory here?
1: Yeah, absolutely. Um, so broadly speaking, right, like theory really, does, it's all its purpose. When we say like queer theory or, or feminist theory or whatever, like critical race theory or whatever, what kind of, kind of theory, we're talking about the attempt to produce concepts to explain phenomena in the world. Like we see something happening over and over and over again, like Um, the domination of women in institutional structures, and we give that a name, we call it patriarchy. And then people start to go in and say, yeah, but patriarchy doesn't operate the same everywhere, especially not to all kinds of women in the same way. Black women experience patriarchy in these spaces in this particular way. Now we're going to give that a name, right? Theory is about the continual refining of trying to understand the unique particular phenomenon that make up a given world. So when I think of queer theory or queer studies, to me, broadly speaking, I understand it as the project of trying to understand the political and public dimensions of desire. To say, like, desire, which we tend to think of, like the affinity between bodies in the world, right? That like, something we've never been able to fully explain, psychoanalysis is always trying to explain it. Like, why do we have a drive towards other people. You could say that it's just like the biological imperative of the species, but if it were, like, why would we fall in love? And why would we, you know, why would we have so many affinities that are non-reproductive? Queer studies says that is not only limited to the private realm. It's very clear that since the beginning of time, like public life has always tried to adjudicate, control, shape, and mold desire. There is no desire that is not somehow attempted to be controlled by governments, institutions, social norms. And queer theory is an attempt to understand that. How does that happen? How does desire always exceed the grasp of attempts to control it? Because it's wild. Like, desire is so wild. It's never been able to be controlled by governments fully. But also, even on the left, when we try to re-educate our desire, it doesn't work. Like, what did lesbian separatists try to do in the 70s? They're like, look, if you really become a feminist and you realize how much men are screwing you over, you should just decide that you don't want to have sex with them anymore. And that did not work for many straight women, right, who were deeply feminist and still wanted to have sex with men. And that's true about many gay men, right? Like, I'm a gay male feminist and I know how pernicious patriarchy is. I still feel deep affinity to men, right? So desire is wild, In a sense, part of my frustration with queer theory in this book is, and I and I'm borrowing this also from a brilliant queer theorist named Rasta Messley, is that queer studies emerges in the late '80s, like out of uh, AIDS activism, right? AIDS activism is this incredible moment when a new coalition of queer activists, lesbians, um, gay men, the homeless. Um, You know, uh, IV drug users like this amazing coalition of marginalized people comes together to combat government neglect and produces a variety of theories of why the government has allowed this population to be kind of like left in the dust. Um, And out of that comes a generation of scholars doing queer theoretical work, right? Like as it translates into the academy, that work is incredible and foundational and it transformed my life. The problem is, is in order to do that work, they often distinguish themselves from an earlier feminist and uh, politics by painting feminism in the early 70s as essentially conservative, as essentialist, as having rigid conceptions of what womanhood is, as obsessed with identity. And queer studies presented itself as everything that was against identity, against rigidity, against fixity. The long-term outcome of this is that queer studies became the home of the idea of fluidity. That like everything that is good about gender and sexuality is its fluidness. It's always in flux. It's always transforming. It's always open. And like I said earlier, in theory, that's a beautiful idea. As an ethic, I'm here for it, right? The problem is, is that fluidity then became an identity. It became its opposite. It was supposed to be against identity and then it became an identity. So now you have a generation of young people who are like, my identity is fluidity. That's like not the point, (laughs) right? Like fluidity is supposed to be an ethic, not an identity. And so part of what I say in the book is that when fluidity becomes something identitarian, when it becomes itself rigid or an orthodoxy about the self, you must recognize my fluidity as an inner truth of my being, it actually becomes its opposite. So that fluidity and rigidity are no longer, like they're just flip sides of the same problem. And so part of what I say is like, I think queer theory unwittingly aided and abetted that idea by selling fluidity to people so strongly that like people actually bought it hook, line and sinker. And the field has not been able to recalibrate from that, and so part of what I try to say is that, like, one of the problems of that thinking is it has divorced queer studies from feminism in lots of ways, because feminism is perceived of as that which is rigid, right? It's obsessed with women as an identity group. It's 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 uh, limited, and that's not actually true. Like, feminism in its most radical. Project is like a project for freedom from the category of gender altogether, like not simply freedom for women, but from like a loosening from the attachment to gender, and that is something we forget often. So, so yeah, like the theoretical intervention is really to push queer studies to question its own assumptions.
0: And 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 again, it it not only is to push queers, I think to quit to push queer studies to to sort of wonder about the identity of fluidity, but also yeah. part of what I think you're doing is resurrecting the sort of radical
1: nature of feminism. Uh, 100%. And I'm inspired in this, right, by by political theorist, Linda Zerilli, who is truly my heart song. You know, Zerilli wrote this book that I always write. It's probably my favorite academic book ever um, called Feminism in the Abyss of Freedom. And she says, look, like, feminism in women's studies has gone in two directions that are very limiting. Um, one of them is she calls it the social question. The idea that the only reason we do feminist politics is to improve the lot of women politically. She's like, okay, well that's really important, but also like, what about everybody else? A eh? second, the question of what is a woman let's deconstruct or show how wo- woman is a socially constructed category. She says, what's forgotten in those two directions is that feminism was, first and foremost, a world-making project. It was not about asking, how do we improve the lot of women, or what is a woman? It is, what could a woman be? What if you projected the category of woman into a completely new context, politically, like the realm of public life? What if you said that women were participants in democracy? What would happen to democracy if you did that? And she says, the questions, the answer to that is always anything. We don't know. It's truly inventive. And so what she does in that book is she tries to reclaim the kind of the most imaginative, inventive aspects of feminism as a project to imagine gender as something other than it is. And so this is really, I'm inspired by that so much. And that's why at the beginning of my book, I argue that we should understand the movements for women's and gay liberation in Ann Snitto's terms as zones of invention rather than traditional social movements. They were these elaborate cultural zones of imaginative invention that were like, what could gender and sexuality be if we just did them differently or we projected them into new contexts, you know, like outer space? Or like Knob Hill in San Francisco or the Upper East Side or wherever, right? And I think that we have often lost the beauty of invention in contemporary gender and sexual freedom projects. I think a lot of those projects have become obsessed with rule following. With the idea that what we're supposed to do is find an unimpeachable set of rules, the right way to use pronouns the right way to talk about trans, the right way to talk about race. And once we figure out those rules, we can follow them and then like freedom will come from that. And if there's anything I've learned from Zirilli and Arendt and others, it's like freedom never comes from following rules. It is the opposite of freedom, right? Like it is a form of enslavement to oneself to be obsessed with rule following, which will always backfire, Because rules can never account for all of the potential unpredictable contingency of the world. And so the more difficult labor is to keep inventing new ways of relating to one another as our genders and sexualities change and evolve. And that is hard. That's like really difficult. And that's why people want to fall back on rules. It would just be so much easier if I didn't have to keep reinventing my relationship to race to class, to whatever, because that is so, it's like a continual mental labor that's difficult to do. And I think democratic theorists would say, but you have to. Yeah. And, and
0: this is also the world that is one that is made up of the diversity of human beings and their experiences, exactly. as opposed to sort of the, the world of, you know, particular people hold power, particular ways of acting, particular ways of dressing mm-hmm. um, and that are expected and, and thus not as hard to think about.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I do one thing I say in the book is I say I think a lot of young gender and sexual warriors today have fought so hard for a fluid, unfixed, open ended, liquid conception of gender and sexuality that the actual outcome of that world is somewhat terrifying to them (laughs) because they're like, oh, if you were to actually dissolve all these identities, we don't know what we would hold on to. Like, I remind my students all the time, I'm like, you guys are so obsessed with identitarian belonging, like race, class, gender, sexuality. You don't think enough about the fact that, like, temperament, personality, spiritual worldview, disposition, these are all sometimes way more ordinate and important than, like, race or gender. My energy, the fact that I'm a loud person who's very energetic, and takes up a lot of space, that is way more important to my general sense of self than is my gayness. Like gayness is so important to me, but it's like somehow completely wrapped up in my temperament. And I remind them, I'm like, if you really, really were to dissolve identities, you would have to do such a fine-grained work of distinguishing people because people are so idiosyncratic in particular. And, And I think what happens is when they start to approach that, They're like, oh, that's actually really scary. So they fall back on the most rigid identitarian obsessions, right? So then they're just like, no, I'm gonna actually read everything in the world on the basis of four or five categories race, class, gender, sexuality, maybe sometimes ability. And I'm like, just fine, (laughs) right? Like, just that's it. That's everyone fits into those five categories. So in some ways, I think that problem of the yo-yo back and forth between fluidity and rigidity is really a result of the fear and anxiety that comes with acknowledging genuine human plurality. If you really start to get close to genuine fluidity, like really how diverse people are, the fear that that can invoke will often throw people back on their most rigid categories of distinction as a protection against that. And my thing is to say, don't turn away. Develop more refined capacity to negotiate differences. And the only way you can do that is through form, by giving shape to distinction to different kinds
0: of people. And, and so I just wanted to ask you... A little bit about the popular culture artifacts that you integrate into the book, sure. Um, And and you have quite a few, um, yeah, yeah. But I I wanted to sort of ask you, uh, to some degree, how you how you happened upon them, um, the ones you chose, and obviously there are lots that you did not choose, um, yeah. And how they help to distinguish this idea of queer forms the historiography that we're talking about, yeah. as well as the theory that you are framing.
1: Absolutely. So the 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 archive of the book is so idiosyncratic and eclectic, right? It's like, I'll do a chapter on feminist speculative narrative, and I'll look at Ira Levin's The Stepford Wives, Joanna Russ's The Female Man, and then Maxine Hong Kingston's Famous uh, auto the- work of auto um, kind of like like memoir, but like theoretical memoir, The Woman Warrior. I'll do a chapter on the boys in the band. I'll do a chapter on Tales of the City. I, I end with Angels in America, and I also jump around. Like I'll 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 talk briefly about Sula, Toni Morrison's kind of uh, brilliant you know, novel about female friendship. Part of the way that I decided on how to write about those texts is is how they arrived to me. As forms that explain something to me about the queer and feminist past that I had not fully grasped. So, you know, over the last 15 years since I was a graduate student to now, I have been reading extensively in the world of feminist and queer politics and culture in the 70s. And here I was receiving all these concepts consciousness raising, lesbian separatism. And then somebody would introduce me to a movie like Zardoz. I remember a friend introduces me to this weird science fiction film. And I'm watching this movie and I'm like, now I understand lesbian separatism. Like the movie explains separatism to me as this project of divesting from the sources of one's oppression. And I thought, that's what the work of that movie is in its moment. It's no surprise that that movie is produced at the same moment that separatism is imploding in the United States as a political project. Whether intentional or not, the film is of the zeitgeist. It seems to be responding to the successes and failures of lesbian separatism. So then what I try to do as an interpreter, like my job as a scholar, is to then show you, the reader, Let me show you how my weird, idiosyncratic, bizarre brain saw in this movie an interpretation of separatism that allows us to see it in all these different dimensions. Like the art of the scholar is that I'm supposed to interpret the work of the art form for you. And so... I didn't do a survey of feminist and queer popular culture in this book. I'm not trying to cover all the greatest hits. I would have done a chapter on movies. I would have done a chapter on novels. I didn't want to do that. What I wanted was to show you different cultural forms that seem to magnetize all the problems of a given issue, equality, consciousness raising, and then present it to you prismatically, like kaleidoscopically from all these angles so that you could see Like, I'm modeling for you what it is like to interpret forms. And that's kind of how I made those decisions.
0: And so the reader can look at your understanding of or your interpretation of Angels in America and yeah. and again, you know, it came out at it was written in the late eighties, early nineties. Uh, it was yeah. produced on Broadway. It's now been uh what is it, an HBO movie? Yeah, oh, Netflix. Netflix uh
1: did like a revival. And mm-hmm. and
0: again, it's sort of it is of a time and and also it tells us about our time. Absolutely. And,
1: and how could it not? Just by its mere existence, right? Like by just by the fact that it can reappear in this moment, it's going to do something for people. People are going to do something with it. And like I said earlier, they may not know anything about the 70s. It might inspire them to go back and learn about the 70s, but they don't need to in order to recognize something in those characters and to scale the imaginative dis- distance between themselves and that thing. And so part of what I try to show in the book is like, I almost wanted to present an archive of cultural forms that I could gift to my readers. That I could be like, look, actually this thing is so exciting and more interesting than you thought it was. Um and it's bequeathing something to you and I want to also pass that along to you because the art the object gave that to me. <laughs>
0: and, and it is not just televisual as we've sort of been talking about it it's it's not just angels in america or, or the stepford wives which is a book obviously and then you know yeah. multiple interpretations in film but it's also graphic comics which have yes. the serialized capacity and have often been the place where queerness and different forms have come forward
1: oh absolutely early. <laughs> yes I mean, part of the reason for that, and of course, my early work is on comics, right? Like my first book was about superhero comic books and their queerness, um, and I've written about comics my whole career. And part of it, something I've said consistently in all my writing, comics are this weird form because everything about them is invented wholesale by hand, right? Or some—I mean, some people make their comics right through computer, um, like technology. But basically, anything that can be drawn can be believed in a comic book. Like if you draw an entire comic book made up of stick figures, I'm just going to be like, I guess they're people. You know, I'm going to go with you. It's harder to do that in film. Not impossible by any means, but it's harder to do it because we expect realism in film. When we see something highly unrealistic, it surprises us. Less so today with special effects. But generally speaking, we expect some kind of realism from photography and film that we do not in comics because we know it's drawn. And so for that reason, comics lend themselves to queerness because it's a place of unrestrained invention. You can draw you know, queer sexuality or desire or gender divergence in as many ways as you can imagine. So I often mention Edie Fake's brilliant graphic novel, Gaylord Phoenix, which won uh, a number of awards, presents a kind of genderless, trickster wizard who travels to all these different dimensions and appears as a different shape in on every single page of the entire graphic narrative and so is never one thing but is always a shapeshifter the ability of fake to be so imaginative as to keep representing this character taking on so many different forms while being recognizable like never fully dissolving there's one moment of dissolution and reconstitution and um, is, is to me just really majestic and, and beautiful and gives the reader like an expanded imagination about what gender could be. You can never nominate the character's gender ever. Like you can never be for sure that the character is male, female, intersex, anything. it's like, and, and yet they take recognizable form. And so the graphic narrative is basically saying, what if there's just more options than we thought? <laughs> That's all. It's not simply about being fluid. Maybe there's just like a lot of different distinctions more than we thought. And I think graphic narrative really lends itself to that, um, which is why I talk in chapter five, I talk about the work of Joe Brainerd and David Wojnarowicz, these two brilliant queer artists in the uh, 70s and 80s who became obsessed with comics as a way to talk about like uh, sexual diversity, the diversity of erotic interests among gay people. And
0: so, Ramsey, what are you working on now that you've completed this magnum opus?
1: Yeah, (laughs) I'm in a really interesting place. I am starting to develop a third book that is going to be called Literary Theory on Acid, that is going to be about the relationship of the contemporary psychedelic renaissance, and the study of literature and culture on university campuses. Um, I mean, one of the things I really want to claim in this new book is that um, the kind of positive psychological results of psychedelic therapy that scientists are now documenting everywhere is actually a description of what we already do without drugs in the literary studies classroom. We basically give art, literature, and culture to our students. We expose them to things, which is basically an analogy for psychedelic um, substances those things enter their brain, transform them, and then we create a therapeutic space where we sit and we talk about those things and we interpret them. That's not just a metaphor, by the way. Like the more that I've studied the actual neurological basis of the way psychedelics help people process difficult emotions, etc., it's actually literally a description of what we are doing <laughs> when we teach students. So the more that I'm kind of exploring that realm, the more I... By the way, this was also inspired by Queer Forms, because when I was giving giving talks on Tales of the City, there was somebody in one of the audiences who said, I love what you're doing. It's so inspiring. But one thing you don't talk about is that all of us who were experimenting with our genders and sexualities in the 70s were on LSD. And this was like a like a major facilitating device for us opening our mind. And so the question for me now more and more is like, how can the psychedelic renaissance allow us to articulate more clearly how it is that art, literature, and culture has a visceral impact on people's lives in a way that actually changes their mind, to use Michael Pollan's formulation, right? Like, what are the mechanisms by which, when you read something, it'll change you? And the answer I always found in queer forms was, it's not just by reading it, right? The joke I always make, if, the, if that was all the case, then we would all be anti-racist because we've read Toni Morrison, and that's not true. It's actually in the process of discussing the thing that you read with other people in a sustained dialogue that changes you. That's what happened to readers of Tales of the City in the 70s. When they read that story and then talked to other people about gay life over and over and over again every day for years, they became less homophobic, and so I want to kind of write a book that is, you know, in that genre of like, let's save the humanities, that is basically saying like, oh, by the way, American public, if you're all turning to psychedelics to try to deal with the problem of mass immiseration, let me just tell you, like this thing that you've devalued, the thing that we do in the, the literature classroom, we're offering mass therapy to young people today, basically. And while the classroom is really not supposed to be therapy... It ends up being therapeutic, right? Like we don't actually do the work that a therapist does, but there is something deeply nourishing about that space. There's a reason that students often leave literature classes and say, that was mind blowing. That mind boggled me. They are talking about, those are the same words people use when they're on psychedelics, right? They're talking about an experience where their mind is expanded and open in all these new directions so that's kind of the, the direction I'm going. in. I will, of course, look at a variety of contemporary popular forms to do that. Well, I, I look forward to
0: reading it and talking to you about it when it comes out, because it was exactly what one of my students said to me after yesterday's conversation oh, amazing. in book five of, you know, again, political theory can sometimes do the same thing um, yeah. because talking about the forms...
1: <laughs> yes. No. Absolutely. Absolutely. An expansion of imaginative possibility. Like what? That's that's psychedelic. Exactly.
0: Exactly. Mm-hmm. It has been a pleasure to speak with you, Ramsey. I love this book. I recommend it. Thank you. Um, Ramsey Fawaz is author of Queer Forms by NYU Press. Came out in 2022. I assume this is available at some brick and mortar store that maybe you want to give a shout out to.
1: Oh, that's a really good. I mean, I, I usually, I mean, I'm always going to uh, Skylight Books in Los Angeles. It's one of my favorite places. I think they've always carried my books. I think they have both of my books recently. I love Book Soup in LA. I'm also a huge fan of Fabulosa Books in San Francisco, which is an LGBT themed bookstore. And also, the green arcade there is incredible. And I assume some of these bookstores also have online presences. Oh, for sure. Yes, absolutely. And I always use bookshop.org often, which connects to all these different independent bookstores. As is the
0: New Books Network. So uh, Uh it has been a pleasure to talk to you today. Thanks for joining me.
1: Absolutely. An honor. Thanks for having me.